Amen. Well, you guys can grab a seat. Uh, hello once again. I failed to do two things a moment ago. Number one, I failed to introduce myself. So for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Ian. It's a privilege of being the lead pastor here at the King's Church. And then secondly, I uh, failed to say Happy Father's Day. So Happy Father's Day to uh, all the dads and grandparents and those of you who are here uh, in the room today. And before we uh, jump into our sermon, uh, I did want to pause and acknowledge just some of the dynamics that are going on when we talk about Father's Day. Uh, fatherhood is a really big deal. It's a sacred privilege and a high calling, and I know in my experience of being a dad, uh, it's both at the very same time the most exciting thing that I get to do and the most exhausting thing I've ever done. Any amens from the dads out there? Hearty amen, right? I mean, dads are tasked with the incredible responsibility of raising our kids toward Jesus and then launching them out into the world to be used for his kingdom. And I know that some days that can feel awful overwhelming to me. I mean, for more honest, every day that feels a bit overwhelming, doesn't it? So to all of the dads who are here today, or maybe some of you who are watching uh, online as we're gathered here this afternoon, uh, I just want to encourage you with a few reminders and then spend a minute just praying for uh, all of our dads. Here's the first reminder I want you to uh, remember today. We ought never to forget, dads, that he who calls us is faithful. He who calls us is faithful. It is not in our own strength that we will pull off fatherhood with any level of success. I mean, we are at our best as fathers when we are turning to the Lord over and over again in faith and repentance and in complete dependence upon him, not acting like we have it all together. That's the best thing that we can model for our kids is that we are still sinners in progress who are committed to loving the Lord and loving our kids. And so don't forget, he who calls you is faithful. Secondly, we can't forget that we have a perfect heavenly father that all fatherhood is modeled after. And this is good news for those of us who might find today to be a particularly difficult day. Right? For those of us who maybe have had absent fathers in the past, for those of us with wayward children, for those of us who might be mourning the loss of a father today, uh, for those of you with a godly and good desire to be a dad and it just hasn't happened yet, uh, for those of you who have been foster or adoptive dads and are navigating an often hard and uncertain road, I just want to remind you today that we have a perfect Father in heaven who perfectly loves his children, including you. So don't forget, he who calls you is faithful, that we have a perfect Heavenly Father. And then lastly, we have been given the gift of one another in the church. We've been given the gift of one another to encourage, to support, to uplift, and to strengthen one another in the truly impossible task of fatherhood. And so I hope today that you are reminded of those things and just simply are encouraged. To tangibly encourage you today, we've got a little gift for you, all the dads here in the room today, to grab at the end of our service. They'll be on the tables in the back. Uh, it looks like a jar full of goodies. I actually don't know what's all in there. Is that an accurate description, Pastor Ryan, Amy, a jar full of goodies? That's what that is. Okay, so at the end of the service, please stop by, get your jar full of goodies. But until then, let's uh, pause and let's just pray. Let's ask the Lord to uh, bless uh, the dads that are here in this room. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, what a privilege it is to come to you as our Heavenly Father. We thank you that you are uh, perfect in your fatherhood, that all earthly fatherhood is modeled after you. And I pray today for all of the dads who are here in this room and who might be watching uh, online today, may you just encourage them. Uh, may you strengthen them for the task that is at hand. Uh, may we not have the pressure to act like we have it all together, but help those of us who are here in this room as fathers to be the lead repenters in our homes. May you strengthen those of us who are wearied in fatherhood. 
May you encourage those who feel defeated. May you bring hope to the situations that feel hopeless. And may you bring hope and reconciliation and restoration to where there might be broken relationships in our families. For all who find this Father's Day to be difficult, may they look to you and find comfort and peace and strength. And to all who are here in this room that are fathers, may they draw uh, their only hope for fatherhood ultimately from you. And Holy Spirit, may you strengthen and empower them for that high calling and task today and in the days ahead. We ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today as we continue our series in the Apostles' Creed, what better thing to talk about on Father's Day than uh, Jesus coming back to judge all people, right? It's a seamless transition to a fairly intense topic. So uh, today we have arrived at the, uh, the line that I think rightly captures the biblical evidence of what will happen when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, the Apostles' Creed reminds us that when he comes from heaven, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, I think most of us at some level struggle with the idea of the judgment of God, don't we? I mean, there's a deep longing within each and every one of us where we're simultaneously a bit scared of judgment, but want judgment at the same time for the world, don't we? Maybe you feel that tension, maybe you don't, but there seems to be a deep longing within the, all human beings that we want judgment, that we want God to bring about his justice on a broken and fallen world. I mean, we see this culturally right now, don't we? I mean, there are cries for justice to happen where injustice has taken place. There's something in the human experience that's bothered by injustice. But then at the same time, it's always easier to talk about justice and judgment when we're talking about somebody else, right? But nobody likes that to be turned on themselves. I think Fleming Rutledge nails it when she observes that justice for everyone is an alarming thought because it raises the possibility that it might come upon oneself after all. Do you feel that dynamic? I mean, what do we make of that? Well, I think all of these streams actually converge in a really powerful way when we consider the judgment day that will happen at the return of Jesus. Now, again, our gut reaction to standing before the judgment seat of God is probably pretty terrifying. But what I want us to see today through the scriptures is that although this is indeed a sober and serious reality, it actually is meant to be a hopeful day for those of us who have been saved by the grace of Jesus. This is actually a day the scriptures encourage us to look forward to because it is the day of hope that we are awaiting as we continue living in this fallen and broken world. So here is what I think we're going to see in our time in 2 Thessalonians today. Here's our main idea. Jesus will return, bringing righteous judgment on those who reject him while vindicating those who believe in him. Jesus will return, bringing righteous judgment on those who reject him while bringing vindication to those who believe in him. And as we look at this coming judgment day, I want to look at three realities of it. The necessity, the soberness, and the hope of judgment day. It's going to be a little heavy as we go, but I promise you we're going to land at the hope of what that day means. So let's begin with the necessity of Judgment Day. Let me set a little bit of the context here in 2 Thessalonians. This is Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica. And they were a church that, from the very beginning of their existence, continually faced intense persecution for their faith. But yet, despite this persecution, was enduring faithfully. 
Paul encourages them in the first few verses of what we looked at today that despite this opposition, their love for one another was increasing, their faith was growing abundantly, and they were an example to all the other churches that Paul ministered to. And with that, let's pick it up in verse 5. If you have a copy of the scripture, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 and following. He says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You see, the first thing that the Apostle Paul wants to do is in the face of persecution, in the face of the injustice this church is facing, he wants to give them a proper perspective. And to give them that proper perspective, he skips ahead to the end of the story and pinpoints God's righteous judgment. He points them to what Christ will do in the future when he returns as is promised. Now, it's important to see right off the bat here that Christ's second coming will be very different than his first. At his second coming, it won't just be the lowly shepherds in Bethlehem that we like to sing about at Christmas time who will recognize who Jesus is. No, instead, when he comes, all will see who he rightly is. He will come with his mighty heavenly angels, warrior-type figures from heaven. He will come in glory and in power, showing himself to every single person that he is the enthroned King of kings and Lord of lords. So he doesn't come incognito in the stable the second time. He comes from the clouds, declaring to all that he has returned to make all things new. Now, there's a million questions about when and how all of these events surrounding the second coming of Christ will take place. But what I want us to focus on is exactly what the creed focuses on, because I think it captures the primary biblical evidence of what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is he will judge the living and the dead. By living and dead, by the way, if you grew up in church saying the Apostles' Creed, you might know this as the quick and the dead. By judging the living and the dead, the creed means that every single person will stand before him in judgment, including those who are alive when he returns and those who had already died beforehand. Now, in preparing this sermon, I was trying to grab some relevant cross-references, just looking at what the Bible has to say about the second coming and the judgment that's going to happen at that day. And it is all over the place. But I stopped this activity quickly because I've got like a 20-minute sermon and I had two pages worth of cross-references. And nobody talks about it more than Jesus himself. So what's going on here? Why is there so much talk about the second coming, and why is there so much emphasis on judgment? Why does a judgment day have to come at all? Well, the short answer is this. It strikes at the heart of God's very character and nature. The idea of a judgment day strikes at the heart of God's very character and nature, because God is, in his person, a God of justice and righteousness. That's why Paul hints here that for God to not bring his righteous judgment to bear on evil and evildoers and those who are persecuting the church would actually be unjust of him. And Paul says in verse 6, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You see, for God to allow at the end of the day evil and evildoers to go unchecked, then we would have a right standing to question whether or not God really is just, whether or not he really is righteous. Now, we mentioned in the last few weeks 
Justice can sometimes be an overlooked aspect of God's character and nature. But the more we overlooked that, we're doing that to our own faults and really missing what the Bible has to say. We're going to be giving a lot more attention to this in the coming weeks, but just consider a few examples. Psalm 89 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Deuteronomy 32, which calls Israel to ascribe greatness to God, is calling to do so because his work is perfect. All of his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That is the testimony of the scriptures over and over and over again. God is a just and righteous God. And then specifically, Jesus as the image of the invisible God when he comes in the flesh, in the incarnation, means that we see God's justice perfectly personified in Jesus Christ. And when he returns to set all things right, he will renew and restore justice perfectly over all the earth. You see, Judgment Day is a necessity because God is just, but this world is fallen and broken and set against him and his kingdom. Which leads us to the second point. There's a soberness about this, isn't there? There's a sober reality of Judgment Day. It's sober for at least two reasons. The first is this. Every single person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. While this passage doesn't speak explicitly to this, the rest of the Bible is crystal clear. No one bypasses, no one skips out on this. Every single person will appear before Jesus. I mean, just consider a few examples. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Consider Jesus himself in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate, same word for judge, people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's just a few examples. It is a consistent refrain over and over again. Every single person will stand before Christ in judgment. Now, we'll talk in a moment about how Christians, how those of us who've been saved by Jesus ought to think about that judgment day, but it should be a sobering thought, should it not, that all of us will stand there. And as these verses are getting at, not only will we stand there, everything unseen will now be seen. All of the secret things will now be revealed. That's a sobering and serious thought. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that divine justice and punishment will be given to those who reject Jesus. Look back in our passage at verse 8. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That is two very sobering verses, isn't it? Now, when it says that the Lord will inflict vengeance, I know we tend to think of this as a negative thing, don't we? But this term in the Greek, it has the idea of God bringing a justice that is equal to the offense. It's the same idea behind those laws in the Old Testament that talk about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. See, we tend to view that from our 2020 vantage point as very barbaric or how 
barbaric, that's not the way you say that word, right, with me, barbaric or archaic. I was trying to combine those two. I see it now. I see how it happened. We see those rules and we think, man, how, that's, that's just so ancient and how dare that be part of the scriptures, right? But that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you know what that actually ensured? It ensured and promoted justice. It ensured that if somebody poked out your eye, you didn't turn around and kill them the next time you saw them. You see, it's making sure that the punishment fits the retribution. It is not, it's making sure there's not any unnecessary escalation. The Lord will bring a retribution in the same way. He's not vengeful and angry just looking for a reason. No, Lord will bring retribution in the way that is fitting to the crime. And it's important to see the description of those who will be the recipients of this judgment. It's those who do not know God. Not speaking of ignorance but rather a willful rejection of his person and a relationship with him. And it is those who do not obey the gospel, as in those who are rejecting Jesus as king and Lord and setting themselves up against him as king and his coming kingdom. Now, we struggle mightily in our culture with the idea of God being a God who judges or God being a God of wrath. And part of the reason why is we get in, this, in our minds this picture of a vengeful and angry God who's ready to snap with anger at any moment, who's sending people to hell against their will. And I think if that's really what's going on here, we ought to struggle with that. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. There's a critical phrase you can't miss here. It's at the back end of verse 9. It says that they will suffer this eternal destruction, here's the key phrase, away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. You see, sometimes we let our imaginations run wild or we think of movies we've seen or some really horrible biblical tracks from the 80s or the 90s. That's not exactly what's going on here. The essence of this divine justice and punishment is right there. It's an eternal existence away from God, away from the source of all light and life and goodness. And that's why the image of God condemning people away to punishment against their will, kicking and screaming, as they go, completely misses the mark. See, God, in his perfect justice, is simply confirming what those who were set against him really wanted all along. See, for those who wanted a life away from God, it will be tragically confirmed and realized for all of eternity. Tim Keller summarizes this simply in this way. Hell is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory written into infinity. Or as C.S. Lewis has famously said in his book, The Problem of Pain, the doors to hell are locked from the inside. You see, it's not that God is vengefully and, and out, going out of his way to send people there. No, people have rejected him, and God confirms their decision in a tragic and sober way. See, for those who have rejected him, it will be confirmed for eternity. It's a sober reality. And let's be clear, brothers and sisters in Christ, those of you in this room who believe in Jesus outside of his grace, that is what we have all freely chosen. All of us have sinned in this way and fallen short of the glory of God. But despite that sober reality, let's get to the hope because there is hope in this day. There is good news that is coming. Do you remember when you were a kid and the teacher would sometimes ask you to stay after class or you get called down to the principal's office or the intercom? 
Maybe some of you are more familiar with that than not. I remember when I was a teacher, like, the best student in the class, we get called down to the office, and everyone goes, ooh, right, what's going on? They're probably getting awarded for something. Sometimes you get that text from your parents, it just says, we need to talk, or please call me, period, right? No emojis or anything to indicate what's going on. So when you're in that situation, I mean, what does your mind start doing? Right, you just start running through, if you're anything like me, what in the world did I do, right? Let's think back to the last 24, 48 hours. What can my parents possibly have come upon? Even if you didn't do anything wrong, you're starting to feel guilty, aren't you? Well, I have good news for you. That is not how we as Christians need to think about Judgment Day. That is not how we need to be worried when we think about this coming day when Jesus returns. Instead, this is a day of hope. For those who are in Christ, this is a day that we ought to long for and anticipate. This is a day that we ought to say with the very end of the Bible, when John sees all the visions of Revelation, his closing words are, Amen, come, Lord Jesus. That ought to be a posture of our hearts. So how do we get there? How can this be a day of hope? I want to look at it on two levels. It's a day of hope both personally and cosmically. Let's look at both. Let's start with personally. Look at verse 10. It says, after those who suffer that eternal destruction away from the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. You see, for those who have turned to faith in Christ, those who have been saved by the great equalizer of his grace, we're awaiting this day because it's a glorious day. We will literally be transformed away from people who are struggling mightily with sin and brokenness into the very same glory that Jesus himself has. And the reason why is critical. We can't miss this. Those of us who are in Christ, the day that we are awaiting is not actually a judgment day in the ultimate sense. Because if you're here and you're in Christ, our judgment day has been moved to the past tense. See, we will stand and give an account we're not awaiting the verdict. The verdict has already been given. I love what Russell Moore says. He says, God has already revealed our guilt at the cross, and we have already agreed with his verdict in our confession of sin and our ongoing repentance of it. Judgment day happened for us in a very real sense already at the place of the skull outside the gates of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. This is precisely what Paul means in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who, don't miss this, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, our judgment day, if you have put your faith in Christ, has already happened. All of our sins were crucified with Jesus. His death was our death, and his resurrection is our new life. And don't miss that last part. See, God's deepest heart towards sinners and sufferers is that they be saved by his grace, not having their rejection of him confirmed. And we know this because Jesus came as God in the flesh, and he died in our place out of love. And for those who have turned to him in faith, our sins and our old selves have already been crucified. The judgment has already been laid down, which means this, when we stand before the Lord at judgment day, we will not be approaching him with shame. We will not be approaching him with uncertainty. We won't be going with the proverbial tail between our legs. Instead, we will realize fully what Paul says in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a freeing thought? Isn't that a hopeful thought? 
the verdict should be guilty for every one of us. And guess what? We agree. If you're in Christ, you've agreed that verdict is guilty. But praise be to Christ that he went to the cross for us. He bore the wrath of God for us so we are delivered from the judgment to come. See, our passage today tells us we will be glorified with Jesus and he will be glorified through us. For a small, beleaguered, persecuted church nearly 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, that was good news. For a small church here in Lakeland, Florida, wrestling with all we're wrestling with in the world right now, that's good news for us too. This will be a day of relief and vindication on the basis of Jesus. We will stand safe and secure. This is a hopeful day. Now, before we close, I want to consider also the cosmic implications of this. See, even bigger than the personal level, there's a cosmic hope on this day. Because God is promising to turn back the curse that's been there since Genesis 3. He's promising to make new all that's fallen. And most importantly, it means that injustice and evil have an expiration date. Injustice and evil will not continue in perpetuity. King Jesus will deal with each and every wrongdoing. No sin will be simply wiped under the rug. All sin will be dealt with. It will either be dealt with on the cross of Christ or it will be dealt with with judgment on judgment day. I think sometimes in our Western context, it makes it hard to see how big of a deal this is. Because by the standards of the history of the church, we live in unprecedented comfort and safety. I mean, the biggest so-called persecution we deal with is like court decisions, right? But there are people around the world right now who have put their faith in Jesus who are literally putting their lives on the line with that confession. Do you know what the global church's favorite book of the Bible is? Not the church here in the U.S., the global church. Their favorite book is Revelation. And while we like to argue about what's going on there and get our charts out and all sorts of craziness in Revelation, you know why they love Revelation? Because it tells them how the story will end. And the story will end with Jesus on the throne, not with evildoers and persecutors and wickedness and evil winning out. You see, they have put their hope in that book because it tells that the end of the story, there is a day of reckoning. And it will be a vindicating day for those who have put their faith in Jesus. This is a cosmic hope that we await. Now quickly, I want to draw three just super practical, quick implications of this doctrine. What does that mean for our lives today? That's good, good news, right, for the end, but what does that mean for us today? Number one, I think that this means we should regularly confess and repent of our sins. We should regularly confess and repent of our sins. For those of us who are here as Christians, the greatest longing of our heart is to be fully known and fully loved. We want to be fully known and fully accepted. And guess what? That has come true in Jesus, which means this. We have nothing to hide and no one to impress. We have absolutely nothing to hide and no one to impress. As Russell Moore said, being a Christian means agreeing with God's verdict, but then realizing that he has still offered forgiveness and salvation out of his love and his grace. His kindness in this way is meant to draw us to repentance over and over and over again. And for those of you here who might not be a Christian or you're unsure where you stand, Second Peter tells us that the very reason Jesus has not yet returned is because of this. Verse 9 says, because he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
Jesus is delaying his return right now so that more and more people might repent and turn to him out of the kindness that he has offered in the good news of the gospel. We ought to confess and repent our sins regularly. Secondly, we should be gentle with the sins and struggles of others. And the reason why is because we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and give an answer, which means we ought not to stand over others in judgment. You see, there's a world of difference between speaking the truth in love or warning or exhorting someone else in your life versus judging them. You see, we don't stand over others in judgment. We stand beside them. You don't need to be the judge because there already is a perfect one. And guess what? You and I will stand before him too and answer for ourselves. And so over and over again, the Apostle Paul warns, be careful with your judgments. Jesus warns in the Sermon on the Mount, be careful with your judgments. We don't need to stand over others. We could be gentle with the sins and struggles of those around us. And then lastly, we resolve to fulfill every good work of faith. Look back at our text. Let's read 11 and 12. Paul says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, if that's how the story ends, how then ought you to live right now? Well, you ought to fulfill every good work of faith. That means that we live meaningfully as Christians declaring and displaying the good news of the gospel. And by the way, that means related to the idea of justice and judgment. Christians can freely speak against injustice. In fact, Christians ought to speak against injustice when we see it. Because we know there is a coming judgment day. And if injustice is not met by the cross of Christ, it will be dealt with. And so we warn others. We proclaim the gospel. We call injustice what it is. We work towards reconciliation. But in all of this, we point people to the hope of judgment day. That you can stand not with your own record but with the record of Jesus who gave himself for you. And so we go about that work in the body of Christ. That is Judgment Day. It's a serious thing, it's a sober thing, but it is a hopeful thing. It is our blessed assurance that we look forward to when Christ will return. Let's pray. Lord, may you give us a proper perspective to see the hope of this day. Lord, we do pray for all of the injustice and evil and persecution and the things that are going on all around the world right now. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen your church, that you would cause those things to be put to an end, uh, that you would give us a proper perspective in the midst of our own sins and struggles to look forward to the day when you return and when we get to be glorified in you and you in us. And so until that day, help us to confess of our sins, to turn from them. Help us to be gentle with the sins and struggles of others. And would you help within us to fulfill every good work of faith that you have called us to. We're begging you to move in that way, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.